We continue working our way through Matthew chapter 26. Today we're looking at verses 17 to 35. Again, very familiar words to us. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, Truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him, one after the other, Surely you don't mean me, Lord? Jesus replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took up a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus told them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Let's pray. Father, please take from us for the next 20 minutes anything that would distract our minds, distract our attention from you. Uh, Please give us ears to hear and hearts that are eager to receive your word. Please, Father, teach us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
The novel The Kite Runner is set in Afghanistan. And throughout this novel, uh, there are a series of betrayals. Amir watches on as his friend Hassan is raped. Later on, he, he increases the betrayal by having his father drive uh, uh, Hassan and his father Ali out of their household. Later again, Amir discovers that they have all been betrayed by his father Baba because he is the real father of Hassan. Tension, guilt and betrayal flow through this novel. And at the end, there are quests for redemption. Quests for redemption. But their redemption is only partial. It's one thing to cheat someone. To cheat someone in business, in politics, in love. It's always ugly. It's always mean. It's always wrong. But betrayal adds another dimension. There's a sense of horrible finality that comes with with betrayal. Of course it's possible to forgive someone, and indeed we're commanded to. But forgiveness, going without revenge, continuing to love the person as we love ourselves, doesn't necessarily mean that we can ever place the same trust in them again. Judas is one of the deepest and darkest characters, not only in the Gospels, but in all of literature. Matthew has already told us, he has shown us, that he is the betrayer. But the others at this point are unaware. Now they leave Bethany and return to Jerusalem yet again, wondering where the king will lead them where the king will lead his people. It is Passover, and they will celebrate again, as their forefathers have done for centuries. This is a time of rich remembrance, as they reflect upon the first Passover and the Exodus. This time speaks to them of redemption, release from tyranny, and freedom. All God's doing. Yes, they will remember Moses and his leadership, but it will be the mighty hand of God that is in the forefront of their minds. They will reflect upon centuries of ruthless captivity under the Egyptians. 400 years in slavery. They will be horrified again at thoughts of the slaughter of the firstborn Hebrew sons cast into the river Nile. They will endeavour to grasp the awe that their ancestors witnessed in, in God's victories over the Egyptian gods through that series of plagues. And yes, they will pause to remember that night when the blood of that innocent lamb was smeared on the doorposts of their ancestors' homes. And the wait, the wait that night for the angel of death to pass over. They'll also recall the hurry escape that their forefathers made and that amazing walk on dry land through water. 
They will try to imagine the utter elation of being free at last. And they will speak of God's continued faithfulness as he daily feeds his people, manna and quail, as they continue their journey. But surely, surely they will also think, this is so, so long ago. And now they live under another oppressive regime. They may have also reflected upon the recent slaughter of children in their generation at the hands of Herod. As they sit around the table, as they look to that man, do they see him as greater than Moses? But he has told them again and again and again that he has come here to die. As they look at their friend, do they allow their thoughts to go to the stilling of the storm? Quiet! Be still! Do they allow their thoughts to remember that he provided food for all his people? Do they think of other miraculous interventions that he has made in their broken world? This is a redemption setting. Where is the king leading them? Where is the king leading his people? As they ponder this multitude of things racing around their heads, he grabs their attention with this heart-stopping statement. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. None of them were absolutely confident that it wasn't them. Because they all ask in turn, surely you don't mean me? Not me. It's not me, is it? Surely not I. They have all realised that they are capable of betrayal. They know that only a friend can betray a friend. Judas wasn't all that different from the rest of them. Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Judas wasn't all that different from us. They all know that Jesus knows more than they can imagine. After all, he has has, uh, accurately predicted things in advance several times in recent days. And furthermore, he's been at pains to teach them that the king knows those who are his. Last week we saw that at the end of the parable, the wedding banquet, the point was the king knows those who are his. And also in the parable of the sheep and goats, the king knows those who are his. Is it me who's going to betray Judas wasn't all that different from the rest of them. But now it's gone horribly wrong. We don't know. We will never know the full extent of his motives. Evil isn't simple. In the end, evil is absurd. It's part of evil's 
danger and darkness. One thing we know is that people, God's people, have been involved in betrayal since the garden, since the beginning of time. Moreover, the Exodus hadn't put an end to it. Is there no way out of this perpetual turning against God? Jesus knows the betrayer. Jesus knows the others. He knows their and our propensity to betray. Jesus allows them to continue eating and to mull all this over. Then he suddenly departs from the Passover script. The Passover meal was very scripted. And Jesus passes from that and starts drawing attention to himself, starts talking about himself. And in so doing, he alerts us to a new exodus, a new deliverance, a new way out from under oppressive rule, the oppressive rule of sin and death. Jesus is saying, look at me, look to me, my body, my very self, my blood, my life, yes, my death, all for you, all for you so that sin can be forgiven. Here it is, the new exodus. The new way out. What is that way? It's brokenness and death that lead to life. Brokenness and death lead to life. A forgiven life, a full life, kingdom life, eternal life. The Good Shepherd will become the new Passover lamb. This is a different, a different sort of death of a firstborn. He will show the way. He will lead the way. He will be the way. He will struggle on their behalf, on our behalf. He will display miraculous signs. He will truly die and truly rise on their behalf, on our behalf. Maybe because I'm Peter, but I always closely identify with Peter. I wonder what he was thinking at this point. Is he still furious that Jesus is talking about his death at this sacred point? This sacred moment? What about Thomas, the doubter? He hasn't got much. Probably still shaking his head. What about Judas? Is he frozen? Still wondering whether Jesus actually does know? Or if he's just guessed? As we go through the Lord's Supper... I wonder what you think. 
how you will react next week when we share the Lord's Supper together. This amazing act of symbolism that says the Son of Man is handed over for us to be a ransom, a ransom for many, a ransom for you. This amazing act that has power beyond words, that has a power to touch and heal bits of our messy lives, that has a power to tell the world that Jesus is Lord. The Lord's Supper helps us to focus But how often do we wander aimlessly from Lord's Supper to Lord's Supper? How often do we wander aimlessly in the meantime? Each day, each day is a redemptive setting. On Tuesday, when the scripture teachers go over the road and up to Russell Lee, it's a redemptive setting. If you go to visit Ken or someone else in hospital, it's a redemptive setting. When you pick up the phone to talk to a friend, it's a redemptive setting. When you wake up in the morning, you'll be waking up to a redemption setting. God offers grace. We need grace. And as God's children, we are agents of grace right where we are. At home, at school, at work. Right where we are. Where is the king leading them? Where is the king leading us? Through brokenness and death? To life? By grace? in and through us. They head out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus explains more. The shepherd will be struck down and the sheep will be scattered. As it says in verse 31, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. I'm sure Peter doesn't hear that key phrase. I'm sure he doesn't. After I have risen. Peter's thinking, if he's thinking about that phrase, he's thinking, okay, when you get out of bed tomorrow, that's fine. Peter has something else on his mind. Peter's up for the fight. Peter is not going to run away. He's going to take whatever's happening that night head on. In his mind, his resolve will be undented. Jesus predicts again what's going to happen. Before the cock crows, three times you will disown me. Rubbish! I will die before I disown you. Can't you see my resolve? Can't you see my commitment? And then those frightening words at the end of verse 35. And all the other disciples 
said the same. Our resolve is unshakable. Our determination will prevail. Yes, Peter will deny that night. That very night. The others won't get a chance to. Because their fear has driven them further away. The king will lead them to a place that none of them are prepared to go. Despite their bravado, despite their declared resolve, it will drain from them in an instant. They are not ready. Their determination alone will not prevail. In coming weeks we'll see how this betrayal and denial and fear play out. We know from subsequent acts of betrayal, perhaps our own, that there is a continued need for redemptive grace. A need that God has catered for in this new exodus. A need that is catered for and available every day. In The Kite Runner, at the end of the book, their quest for redemption end up being acts of self-improvement. They they desire to live a more principled life, a more charitable life. Redemption in The Kite Runner is only ever partial because effort at self-improvement can never compensate in full for such betrayal. What is being offered, offered to us by God through Jesus' death and resurrection is full redemption eternal redemption for what we have done and what we have yet to do. This is far, far better than any acts of self-improvement. If you have taken up this offer, if by faith you followed King Jesus through death to life, how is that redemptive act, that new exodus that occurred so long ago, How is that impacting your daily life? Are we just sitting waiting for God's next big thing? Or are we prepared? Are we ready to join God in his daily redemptive work? Yes, in our weakness, join with him in this place at your place, wherever you are. Children of redemption, children of grace, being agents of redemption and agents of grace, seeking to offer love and compassion, filled with God's spirit, to share his word, his redemption. I think part of my problem is that my focus becomes too microscopic. 
I think about me and my weakness and what I want and the way I think things should be. I think about what would make me happy. I think about what God should do. And then I remind myself that I'm like those, the crowd. The crowd in chapter 21 whose expectations of the king fell way short of what the king was offering. Our low expectations of the king skew our thinking, but I think they also skew my living. And so it becomes a matter of determination and effort and my resources and my resolve. I so easily forget that God's plan, God's kingdom, God's glory is macroscopic. Grander, grander than we ever let ourselves believe. We forget that all of God's resources, all of God's resources are available to his people, to us. When we placed ourselves into his hands, he will work in and through us to his glory in every situation. Yes, like Peter and others, we will run, we will fear, we will fail. But in Jesus, the living Christ, there is grace, grace for all occasions. So when hardship comes your way next, Will you tell yourself it's a tool of God's grace and a sign of his love? Or will you give in to doubting God's goodness? Jesus' resolve didn't diminish in the face of danger and death. The resolve of the disciples Our resolve is not enough. It will never be enough. We need grace. Like the disciples, we will say, not me, not me, the others, but not me. Yet these moments, these not me moments, are the ones that we should fear most. The not me moments are the ones that we should fear most. Because they are moments when we think independently we are capable and we are strong. Rather, we need to acknowledge our weakness because God has and will supply all the strength we need. You see, our hope is not found in our willingness and our ability to endure, but in God's unshakable, enduring commitment to never turn from his work of redemptive grace. Paul in Romans 15.5 calls God the God of endurance, the God of endurance, the God who will endure no matter what, The God who will redeem, the God who will renew, the God who will prevail, 
and he calls us daily to join him. Don't give up on God. His love endures forever. A bruised reed he will not break. A smouldering wick he will not snuff out. If you are feeling battered and bruised with your last flicker of light still lingering, he will give grace. Look to him, not to self. Be part of the world's redemption rather than your own resolve. A bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not snuff out. Let us pray. Father, I say to myself, I do not want to betray, I do not want to run. But I know I am weak. Praise you, Lord Jesus, that when we are weak, you are strong. Thank you that you call us in our weakness to join you in your work of redeeming this world, transforming this world, putting things back together as they are meant to be. Please be our strength this week, for we pray in your most precious name. Amen.